0: Hello and welcome. Thank you so much for joining me. I'm Dr. Maren Wood. In the last episode, I talked about mistakes I see graduate students and PhDs making when they enter the non-academic job market and how these mistakes are rooted in myths and assumptions that permeate academic culture and how we need to interrogate these big T truths in order for us to develop a better strategy for applying for professional jobs. Well, another challenge PhDs and graduate students encounter when they begin applying for jobs outside of academia is that they approach the professional job market the same way they would for applying for faculty jobs. The problem is that academic and professional job markets work very differently, and you need a very different strategy for navigating the professional job market than you do for applying for things within academia. Whether it's a faculty job or a postdoc or even to enter graduate school, there's certain ways that you apply for things within the academy, and that doesn't necessarily translate to the professional job market. So what I want to do today is I want to talk about the differences between academic and non-academic hiring, and I want to think through the different processes and criteria that are are put in place to hire talent within academia versus the processes and criteria used to evaluate candidates and bring in talent within the non-academic, primarily business space. Now, there are some overlaps, and so we should think about those. And to start with, one thing that you need to remember in a job search, whether it's when you're applying for academic positions or or professional jobs, It's that it's never about the job candidate. It's not about you. It's not about how the job will benefit you. It's always about what are the needs and values of the employer? What is their criteria? And how do you, as the job seeker, the job candidate, align with the needs, values, and expectations of the employer? And they have listed that criteria, their needs, in the job advertisement that you're pitching your documents to. So let's start with the academic hiring. Academic hiring is driven by the needs of the university or the institution. And we kind of know this, but we often don't interrogate what it actually means to be on the academic job market or the needs of the institution and how that structures the academic job search process. So let's begin there. What is the goal of the institution or what is the need of a university? Well, primarily, they need to attract students. And they need to attract students so they have people to teach, but they also need to attract students in order to generate tuition dollars. And they also need to be able to bring in additional revenue through sponsorships or donations sponsorships from organizations or businesses, corporations, or donations from alumni. And they'll also seek research and grant dollars from funding agencies. And they'll do that largely by having faculty apply for those research grants. Without this critical revenue, a university ceases to exist. It cannot deliver on its mandate to educate citizens within the body politic or produce new knowledge that benefits society. Now, universities are ranked against other institutions, both domestically and internationally, and rankings directly affect reputation, which in in kind impacts an institution's ability to attract students, grants, fellowships, donations, and scholars. So, you know, you can think through this. Harvard is totally able to attract a huge number of student applicants every year. It has an enormous endowment through grants and fellowships and donations. And it is able to attract scholars from across the globe to come and teach at its institution. And that situates it within a specific class of institutions, very different from, let's say, small regional schools in, um, you know, that are publicly funded, and they have very, they're not as prestigious. And so they struggle a little bit more to attract students, grants, fellowships, and scholars. Rankings are driven by the reputation of faculty, the prestige the faculty bring to the institution through their scholarship. Things like the number of publications in high-impact journals or international awards won by scholars at that institution or the amount of research dollars that the, a faculty member is able to bring in. All of those impact reputation of the institution far more than like the, te- the reputation of, of teaching, right? The reputation and rankings of institutions are driven by the, the scholarship of scholars and faculty, now, the need of the institution to maintain its ra- or, or improve its rankings amongst peer institutions directly affects how departments hire. So a hiring committee in a department is going to evaluate the prestige or reputation of a candidate, and they'll do that by looking at a candidate's CV to see where a candidate studied, and if a candidate studied at a top institution, then that prestige translates over to that department. And if the candidate has published high-impact scholarship, well, that prestige then translates to the hiring department. Now, there are some differences that departments have from institutions that also drive hiring. So within a a specific discipline, there will be a need to cover certain topics or subject matters that are aligned with the demands of the field. And this is where they'll look at candidates teaching their ability to cover specific topics of interest to students or courses students are required to take. And a department will also consider if you're a good fit. Now, if you've been on the academic job market, you know how thick of a portfolio you have to submit for academic jobs. Sometimes it's hundreds of paper, pages, but there is a rationale behind all of this paper. So let's think about what you submit. You submit a CV, which communicates your prestige and potential. Your publications that you have to submit or draft publications or book proposals. will tell a committee if you'll produce high quality scholarship, which again relates back to the needs of the institution. And then they'll look at your teaching portfolio to see your potential to teach and attract students, which both serves the needs of the department, but again, serves a larger goal of the institution, which is to attract students. And finally, you're, if you're a good cultural fit, They're going to evaluate that through your cover letter, your teaching statement, and your diversity statement. And your research statement will also tell a department about your future as a potential scholar. So this giant, thick dossier that you submit is about 80% of the hiring process in academia. They're going to evaluate and read most of what you submit in order to determine whether or not you're somebody they want to bring to campus and really want to invest in. Now, one thing I want you to think about, especially for those of you that have been in long-term contingent positions, or if you have been uh, working as a postdoc for multiple years, what prestige are you adding to your CV? So one of the huge challenges I see for contingent faculty and postdocs and sort of digging out of their contingent position and moving into a full-time faculty position is that this is a prestige-based hiring process. And the problem is, yes, your teaching is great, but it doesn't align with the needs of the institution, which is to attract scholars who are going to publish and attract students and donations and awards. And so this is a real challenge when you enter, when you spend a lot of time in those contingent positions, you're not adding prestige the way that an institution values. And so if you're listening to this podcast and you're thinking about Should you stay in academia or should you leave and start pursuing a non-academic job? If you've been in a a contingent faculty position for a number of years, maybe three or more, it's really time to think about an exit. If you're five to seven years into postdocs, it's really time to think about an exit. You're no longer adding the prestige that an institution values, and it's going to be that much more difficult for you to move from a contingent position into a full-time faculty job. So that's just something to think about. This is a prestige-based hiring process. What is your prestige? How are you adding prestige to the institution? Now, the good news is that it's the opposite for professional job markets. Employers and hiring managers are going to focus much more on the interview process because they're actually interested in your skills and they want to evaluate how you think, how you apply your skills to solve problems. And they're not necessarily going to put as much weight on the documents, the resume and the cover letter. This is why your resume and cover letter need to be one page each. One page resume, one page cover letter. All a resume and cover letter is, is an invitation to a conversation with a hiring manager. What you need to do is read the job ad, treat it like a prompt for an essay, write a short Document a resume or co- and cover letter explaining that you've read the doc that you've read the prompt, you've read the job ad. You understand the challenges that the in, that the organization have has, and you're prepared to bring your skills into that organization to solve that problem. And then from there, the hiring manager is going to put you if if they like your resume and your cover letter, they're actually going to put you into a interview process that will actually be quite lengthy. So it's important to have strong application materials. Primarily to communicate that you've read the job ad, you understand the needs of the, of the hiring manager, you understand the needs of the organization, and you have the skills to solve the problem. But they're much less important in the professional hiring than you may think. And again, this is a huge difference where we put all of our time and energy into these dossiers that are thick and huge in academia. and. Then you turn around and you're supposed to just submit a one page resume and one page cover letter, and people panic. They're like, but this, I, this isn't long enough. I can't tell you about all the amazing things I've done. And it's like, yes, you're right. I don't need you to tell me all the amazing things you've done. I just need you to tell me enough that I want to pick up the phone and call you. That's the point of the resume and cover letter. Now, let's think a little bit more about the needs of a nonprofit or business. I'm just going to use business for, for a shorthand. Every organization is looking to solve a problem. The founders of a nonprofit or of a business have identified a particular need or problem that needs to be solved, and they are devising solutions to meet that need. For an organization to make that intervention or to solve that problem, they need to generate revenue just like a university. Revenue allows the business to hire staff, pay bills, run the operations, and invest in products and services to maintain that competitive edge against other competitors. So universities are competing against other, organiz- other universities, so that's the whole ranking problem. And businesses are also competing to maintain a competitive edge. It's just a little bit different, or it's worded differently. Another big criteria that businesses have is innovation. In order to survive, you have to be creative in solving those problems, both within your or- own organization, but also within the marketplace. And finally, every organization, whether it's a for-profit or nonprofit, have a mission or mandate, and that's related to the problem that the organization is seeking to solve. So just because something is for-profit doesn't mean it doesn't have a mission. M- many for-profit companies are very clear about what their mission and intervention needs to be. So, what this means is that a professional employer will value your experience and your skills, not your prestige. They don't really care what your degree is in or where you earned it from. They care much more about, can you come into my organization? Do you have the skills? Do you have evidence that you've applied your skills with success to solve similar problems within similar organizations? Do you understand the ins and outs of the position? Or am I going to have to spend time training you? Because that's a cost, right? If I have to bring you in and teach you your job, I'm, not, I'm going to be less inclined to do that than just to hire somebody who's already proven that they can do this job within another organization. Will you be a good cultural fit for my organization and can you learn and grow and innovate? And through all of this, the hiring manager will be asking explicitly and implicitly, what evidence do you have? How have you applied your skills with success to solve problems, similar problems within similar organizations? So as a candidate, you're going to just submit that one-page resume and one-page cover letter carefully tailored to the job ad, and it will be an invitation to start the conversation. Sometimes you'll need to submit a portfolio to demonstrate that you've done similar work with success. So I know that in data science or UX research and a lot of designer marketing fields, it's very important for people to, to have portfolios. Hiring managers will often want to see evidence of how you've thought, how you've applied your skills um, to create deliverables. And so you might need to develop a portfolio. A professional job search after you submit the resume and cover letter, it will involve multiple interviews with different people across the organization, including the team you'll be working with. It often involves a skills assessment or homework assignment so that people can see how you think or solve problems what this means is that it's not your prestige that's going to matter. It's not your degree or your subject matter expertise or the fact that you're an expert. It's going to come down to, can you apply your skills? What skills do you have? And can you apply them with success to solve problems within my organization? How do you help my organization succeed and grow? How do you help us innovate? How do you help us solve problems? How do you help us generate and bring in revenue? What this means, then, is that you need to radically change how you think of yourself and your education and your scholarship. Rather than relying on prestige or academic achievements to land a job, you need to think about how you applied your skills with success to achieve these things. Think of your academic work as deliverables, projects you completed. How did you accomplish these things? What skills did you develop and apply? And how would you apply these same skills, but in new context, to solve new problems? You are not your degree. You're a smart, capable person with an advanced degree who, through the process of your education and training, developed a rich range of skills that you applied to solve problems in academia. And now you can take those same skills and apply them to solve problems in a variety of different organizations. For your professional job search, it's going to be your skills that will open doors. We appreciate you joining us for this episode of Job Search the Smart Way, a podcast for graduate students and PhDs. For more resources to help you launch your next great career, be sure to visit beyondprof.com and sign up for our free events. And remember, smart people work everywhere.